This is Dr. Bob Hurley, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? David, I am a professor of management at Florida University, and I also have a consulting firm, Hurley Associates, where we help organizations uh, improve effectiveness and leadership using behavioral science. And I, I absolutely love, uh, I'm going to get into it in a second, I absolutely love the new book, so I'm excited to welcome you into the Leader Lab. Um, there's a ton of research in it, but I, I'm going to lob you the easy question, probably the question that doesn't need to be asked, but let's go ahead and do it as a, as a baseline. The new book is called The Decision to Trust, and why is building trust within leaderships and high-trust organizations, why is that so vital? It's vital because uh, a company and, quite frankly, even a nation can't really be effective, productive, or uh, progressive without trust. Uh, without, when there's low trust, when there's a loss of trust, you lose cooperation. And all organizations, uh, all effective organizations, are effective because they have cooperation. The marketing department cooperates, the finance department, et cetera, to create customer value. It's also true uh, in, among nations. Uh, so without trust, it's kind of hard to be uh, productive. Absolutely. And, and the book sort of starts out with a lot of, of research and, and discussion on how it is people lead to trust and what, what helps people make that decision to trust. Tell me, tell me a little bit about how people come to trust one another or, or why, and why decisions not to trust occur. Okay. Um, well, think about it. Uh, trust is about relationships. Uh, it can be between two people or between a person and an organization. But in those relationships, you make a judgment about uh, whether you can rely on the other party. That's what I call the trust judgment. And what I do in this book is I identify 10 basic factors that determine whether someone will just make a judgment to trust or make a judgment suspicious. And once, once you make that judgment, once you have either a trusting orientation or distrusting orientation, it fundamentally affects how you relate to that other part, right? If you decide to distrust, you're going to withhold. You're going to take precautionary measures. If you decide to trust, you're going to be uh, cooperative, sharing information, and you're going, to be, you're going to have a good partnership, which goes back to why I said you have to have trust to be productive. So um, I, I talk about uh, three trust or factors that determine whether someone has a high capacity to trust or lull. And then I go into relationship factors, and I identify uh, seven relationship factors that determine whether someone will judge that relationship to be trusting or not. So, for example, one of the, it's interesting. In this context, I was asked in an interview the other day about how do you judge the trustworthiness of a political candidate. Uh, it's an interesting way to, to frame it, right, because you make a trust decision uh, when you elect the president of the United States. And so... My point of view on this uh, in this book is that we don't actually have a trust problem in this country. We have a trustworthiness problem. People offer trust when they deem people to be trustworthy. And so that's why the trust has declined for 30 years now, is increasingly we see trustees, persons in, uh, in authority positions, uh, as less trustworthy. It's really, really interesting. And, and you talked a little bit about the truster factors and the situational factors. That's kind of the bulk of the decision to trust model. Uh, I, I bite on this uh, political candidate thing. I want to get into that in a second. But first, can you give us a little bit more of a top line on what the three truster factors are, what the situational factors are, and how that plays into the total decision to trust model? Obviously, 
we don't want to give away the entire book, but sure. a little bit on the model. So, so the first, the trust or factors have to do with, and this is important, and a lot of, not a lot of people who've written about trust talk about this. Not everybody is equally trusted, right? So, so sometimes we think that trust is all about the trustee, right? If you're trustworthy, you're going to be given trust. Well, not entirely true. Some people don't trust anybody, and other people trust everybody. So I identified three factors that uh, are trust or factors that will determine whether somebody makes a decision to trust or be suspicious. The first is, uh, is what I call adjustment or neuroticism, right? People who are extremely anxious and worry struggle more with trust. Another is risk tolerance. People who are risk-averse need more assurance before they're going to make a trust decision. Uh, and the last one is power. Uh, when you're in a low-power position, uh, it's more difficult to trust. So I take those three variables and say, that can help us understand um, trust doors. Who will decide to trust and who will decide typically to distrust? Now, the other factors in the model say, let's suppose you have a low disposition to trust. You're sort of an anxious person. There are other uh, seven other models, uh, sorry, variables in the model that you can actually enhance to increase trust, even with people who tend not to trust. So what are those? One is uh, similarities. If we have common values, you're more likely to trust me. Another one is alignment of interests. When our interests are aligned, you're more likely to trust me. If our interests conflict, you're more likely not to trust me. Um, another is benevolent concern. If you care about the welfare of other people and you, you demonstrate that, you're more likely to get people to trust you. On the other hand, if you demonstrate you really don't care about other people, then you're more likely to have people decide not to trust you. Another is uh, capability and competence. If you're competent, people will tend to trust you. If you don't demonstrate competence, then you, uh, you will probably have people look at you and say, not trustworthy. The last two factors are predictability and integrity. People who are predictable tend to be more trusted. And then the last one is communication. When communication is open, transparent, and when you develop a bond with someone, they're more likely to trust you. So I use this model to basically define who will we trust. Now, it's interesting. Once you know what makes up trustworthiness, you can actually train people to be more trustworthy, and you can actually intervene in organizations to make organizations more trustworthy. And let's talk about that a little bit. Let's, we'll get into the political thing because we're, we're in the midst of a, a primary, a heated, what's becoming a heated primary, though it's really more like one by one everybody's dropping off. Um, but we'll talk about that in a second, but let's talk about within the organization. How can we help uh, leaders, senior leadership teams of organizations be more trustworthy with their people and, and even with their shareholders in for-profit organizations? That's a great question, David. Um, well, over the years, we've been uh, called into a variety of organizations around the world to help them build trust. And, and the way I look at it is, um, if you want to enhance trust in an organization, an absolutely great place to start is with leadership. If you can get a critical mass of leaders at the top of the organization down into, you know, say the top 5%, you can get them to understand exactly what trust is, exactly what trustworthiness is, and start to model those behaviors you're going to enhance trust. Then, once they understand those things, you basically then start to influence the architecture of the organization. So what we typically would do is we would do uh, some leadership training around trustworthiness. We would take the uh, uh, leaders through 
similarities? What does it mean to, to create common values? We take them through how do you align interests? We help them understand uh, how do you de define capability and how do you accurately communicate your capability and not over-promise and under-deliver. We define what's predictability, what's integrity, what's ethics, and then how do you communicate in, in a high-trust way with fairness and transparency. So we, we have a whole series of leadership practices that go against those different elements of the model. And we get uh, leaders to understand those things and practice manifesting those things. Then once, we, once leaders are bought in and they understand that, then we say, okay, now let's take a look at the, the whole organizational architecture. How do we uh, embed trustworthiness in the mission and the strategy? How do we embed it in leadership practices? How do we embed it in culture? How do we embed it in the structure of the organization? How do we embed it in how we train people to lead and manage? How do we embed it in systems, in the HR systems, in the communication systems? The point here is that high-trust organizations have a high-trust system. By the way, conversely, all of these companies that have had fundamental betrayals, whether you talk about News Corp or you talk about BP, uh, or you talk about the most recent one is MF Global, none of these betrayals of trust are, are really rogue players. In all those cases, there's been some systemic dysfunction that has eroded trust. So, so high-trust organizations embed trustworthiness into the architecture of the organization. You, you know, it's interesting that you say that. As, as I was reading through the book and looking at the trust or factors, one of, one of the most obvious ways they do that is, is with power and position power. And it, it's funny because you, when you look at lists of best companies to work for and you think about companies that are high-trust organizations, what, what you normally see is there's a, a significant reduction in the rigidity of a hierarchy and in that sort of position power. People know where they have authority and, and where they can act and where they can't and are, and are okay with it. It's not just the, they're not order takers and things like that. So I think you're absolutely, it's, sorry? You're absolutely right. That's very insightful. Um, and what they do is it's interesting. If you look at the architecture of those organizations, in those high-trust companies, those 100 best companies to work for, which is based on a trust survey, you see that they have woven in employees into the mission and the strategy. They, and, 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 and it's funny, uh, Tony Shea at Zappos said, said that um, employees and customers are the same, uh, different sides of the same coin, right? I mean, how do we deliver great customer service? We have to have great employees. Um, and they build it into the culture. Uh, and you're right, it's, there's more um, democracy. There's a more fair process, and there's more employee engagement in these high-trust firms. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely, and I, and I love that quote of two sides of the same coin. I, I see it even before Zappos. I saw it in, in another company that I know you, you consulted with, and I love because they're based out of the same town as me, and that's Quick Trip, another company that takes care of their people, says that we're going to give you the power, we're going to trust you with the store and trust that you'll take care of the customers, and, and I have willingly driven several blocks out of my way to get gas at a quick trip station instead of what was near me. Yeah, that's a great case study, David. Um, you know, founded by Chester Cadjo in the 50s, uh, this entrepreneur and his partner built this incredible company that is is on the list of 100 best companies to work for, has been on that list for nine years. And I did an extensive study of that uh, organization, and uh, they manifest all the high-trust characteristics. Uh, their mission and strategy is about serving customers and, and creating a great place for employees. Um, their leadership is all about caring for the customer and employees. Um, their culture is interesting. 
their cultural elements are focus on the long term. Uh, do what's right for the customer. Do what's right for Quick Trip. Never be satisfied. So they're all about customers, employees, and excellence. And you see it when you go into their stores. And, and it's interesting. I mean, it doesn't matter which store you go in. It's all, you know, it's all consistent. I mean, they have wired a culture that is high trust and is great at customer service. Hmm. A- absolutely. And, and switching gears a little bit, here's why, where I bite on the political leaders thing. And I, and I see that you're probably right. It's not a problem of trust. It's a problem of trust, trustworthiness. You think about one of the big trust or factors is power. And we live in a, in a democratic society, a representative republic, where power is, is willingly given, you know, it's, it's rests in the people and is given to the elected political officials. So there isn't, theoretically, there shouldn't be that big diverse of power. And yet, when we look into the realm of politics and government, we see a huge divide in, in people deciding not to trust. So what, what causes that? Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, well, first of all, trust in Congress and trust in government has been declining for 30 years. It's, it's now actually below 10%. Uh, 10, less than 10% of the people have a great deal of confidence in Congress. Um, so it's been declining over a long period of time. What are some reasons? Well, you know, uh, the legal corruption that exists is one reason. Camp, you know, lack of campaign finance reform, lobbyists. I mean, uh, Washington operates on money. As soon as you get elected, you have to start raising money. I mean, this is a corrupting influence. Uh, the, Barney Frank and, and Chris Dodd, who were key uh, uh, people in, in the run-up to the global financial crisis, got many millions of dollars from the finance industry. Right? So that's a corrupting influence. Um, also, think about what's going on now in terms of the primaries and whatnot. Um, when we, when, do we get the best candidates running for president? Probably not. Right? Because, because running for president is a sort of a narcissistic circus. Uh, and a lot of capable, right? I talked about competence and trust, right? A lot of capable people want nothing to do with it. Also, we, 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 we uh, open up people's private lives, et cetera. Uh, it's very intrusive. Um, and, and the whole primary process is not really a good mechanism to judge trustworthiness. We judge oratory skills, charisma, glibness, not can somebody um, achieve consensus, can somebody influence people, can somebody, is, is somebody capable of being a chief executive. Most of those things aren't adequately assessed in our current election process. So there's a lot that needs to change. Our government is a wonderful thing. It's created a lot of freedom, a lot of prosperity. But like every, every other organization, it needs to evolve, and we haven't really done that. You know, it's interesting if you say that, especially with oratory skills, and you look at communication as one of the situational factors, and yet it's not an, an open line of communication. It's telling you what you, what you want to hear. There's a great – I don't know if you've seen the, the recent movie, The Adjustment Bureau, but it stars a guy who's who, – Matt Damon plays a character who's going for Senate, and he talks about how they paid $75,000 to, to a consultant to determine the right level of scuffing on a shoe so that it appeals to both blue-collar and white-collar individuals. I have seen when that, you, yeah. Yeah, and when you think about it, you know, all right, it might not be that much money, but you know those decisions are made, and it's not open communication. It's communication with this hidden intent to communicate something else. Um, exactly. Which is why I think, and, and you're, you're right about why I think, yeah. why you're right about a, a lot of people who say it would be fantastic to be a political leader, a senator, a president, would never get into the race because it's just, 
that level of communication. You, you almost can't have, I think, on some level we breed people to expect that and at the same time uh, abhor it. But, you know, you, you, yeah, you're very right. Francis uh, Fukuyama uh, is a, a well-known trust scholar and wrote a very influential book um, called the, uh, the End of History. Uh, in the Financial Times recently said that the parliamentary system that the U.K. has is in some ways better than our system, right? Our system is divided government. Uh, it's hard for them to get anything done. This is one of the reasons the data shows why people lose trust in Congress, because they don't think Congress can get things done. And, and Congress has, has proven that. They, in other words, they have matted, ma- manifested untrustworthy behavior. They can't seem to uh, come together and act. You know, after 9-11, we were all Americans. Today, we've got partisan gridlock and people lobbing hand grenades at each other over the partisan divide. Uh, it's really dysfunctional. And uh, quite frankly, I hope, and I talk a little bit about this in the book, I think what's missing is we voters, we citizens, are bad trustors. We are easily duped. We need to get much better at withholding trust from untrustworthy people. And that includes leaders in corporate America, and that includes leaders in Washington. What, until we get better at that, until the, the sort of moral outrage is sufficient that we take enough time to make good, good trust decisions, we're going to continue to get duped, just like the people that, that were duped by Bernie Madoff. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. We we tend to be in love with this story of the new leader coming in and he's going to change the organization for the better, be it a business or even a country. And yet we get we end up getting duped because no one person can do all that much. It, again, you look at the power dynamic in, in good organizations, power rests largely distributed throughout the organization. And I think we need probably the same thing in, in a governmental system is for people to remember that power is dispersed throughout the entire organization, not this one person that we elect every four years. That's exactly right. And, 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 and for that reason, we ought to be looking at these candidates to say, can they work in the system, right? You can't get things done by just partisanship. So we need to be electing uh, officials that are, um, can get things done across the aisle. It's interesting. Um, you know, if you ask yourself, one of the things that is important about trust is, is you look at trust from a stakeholder perspective. Who's the stakeholder and how will they judge trust? Well, when we elect uh, our, uh, our officials in Washington, we sometimes are very uh, selfish. We, uh, we operate based on special interests. And we stop thinking about ourselves as Americans. And we elect someone who will serve our individual interests. Well, if they all go to Washington and serve their individual interests, special interests, where, where, who, who serves the interests of the nation? How do we come together and do things as a collective, as a nation? Uh, so, so part of this is we have to really think about ourselves a little bit better as, as becoming better trustors. Hmm. Interesting. And, you know, let's, let's go on that note, because bringing it back down to a smaller level, whether it's uh, the individual in a, in a large you know, country like ours, or even a manager leading a small team, what, what can we do with individuals to make them better at trusting? Uh, well, the way, the way we can do that is people will be more trusting if the people that they're deciding to trust are more trustworthy, right? So I approach this problem as a very concrete, practical problem of how do we induce trustworthiness, right? And so in the leadership perspective, we have to teach people how to, uh, how to uh, create common values, how to create a common identity. 
you know, when a, when a leader creates a spree de corps around common values, like Tony Shea does at, at Zappos or Jim Goodnight at SAS, it helps people trust, right? There's a foundation and a platform for trust. Uh, leaders have, we have to teach leaders how to align interests, how to, how to take multi-stakeholder interests, understand them, assess them, negotiate them, and move the whole enterprise forward, not just by serving one interest, the shareholder, right? We need to, we need to serve all interests, employees, customers, community, and shareholders. Uh, we, can, we need to be teaching uh, leaders about benevolence and what does it mean. And when do, you, uh, when do you, so the opposite of benevolence is opportunism, right? Get in, get yours, and get out before it crashes. We need, to be te- we need to be selecting leaders and teaching leaders about, about appropriate benevolence. What does it mean to care for the welfare of your people? I talk about this in the book as uh, integrative stewardship. An uh, integrator encapsulates interests, and a steward thinks about the long-term and the welfare of, of other people. So we need to be basically teaching leaders what's trustworthiness. And, and by the way, it's in the leader's interest to create followers that trust. You may have somebody who follows you, but if they don't trust you, they're going to follow you very carefully. And I think that's likely what we see in a lot of organizations where the new manager is just placed in there and take the time to build trust and just and become trustworthy and just starts giving orders. I think you're right. Exactly. Well, if, if you want to learn those things, speaking to the readers, if you want to learn those things, the Decision to Trust is a fantastic book for it. One of the things I love, and I know that our audience members love, it's why we took the Leader Lab, is the amount of research. There's several pages at the end of this book, an appendix that ties everything back to published peer-reviewed studies on trust. Um, so you're not just dealing with flowery words about how to be trustworthy. You're dealing with evidence-based trust building, which is what I, I absolutely love. Uh, Bob, I want to switch gears to you a little bit. What are you reading now? Hmm. Uh, I'm actually just finishing uh, Condoleezza Rice's book, uh, No No Higher Honor. Uh, I, I uh, just went through an experience where I, I taught a seminar with uh, General Peter Pace, who was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, on, on Iraq. And we looked at leadership and decision-making around the whole run-up to the Iraq War and, then, and, the, and during the war. And so I, I've read all, most of the memoirs, um, Rumsfeld and uh, Cheney's and, and Condoleezza Rice's uh, memoir, and uh, it's a really it's a fascinating case study on trust and leadership. By the way, uh, Condoleezza Rice must mention the word trust and distrust a hundred times in her book. Uh, and, and, and by the way, she very clearly says that, um, that uh, Rumsfeld did not trust Powell, and Rumsfeld probably didn't trust uh, Condoleezza Rice. And these were among the top players who were making major decisions around the invasion of Iraq and the uh, prosecution of the war. Uh, so it was a challenging assignment to go into Iraq and, and create democracy, but we had, a, we had a team that wasn't quite together with respect to trust. Hmm. And if ever there were a team that you could uh, need, that you need to be a high-trust team, it would be that one, and yet it's not there. Exactly. Well, I, I have not actually picked it up. I, I actually sort of, uh, I usually wait till election seasons are over and then catch up on all of the uh, the political biographies and things like that because I try and, I don't know, it's a little too much at one time. But it's it's definitely now on my list now that you've mentioned it. Um, I know the, the book is out, and I'm sure you're doing a lot with plugging it, but what's, what's next for you? What's on the horizon? 
I want to go and uh, give as many talks as I can to as many organizations and institutions about what trust is, why it's declined, and how, and how we can change that trend uh, by helping people understand trustworthiness. That's that's my passion. Is uh, I want to spread the word. Uh, I actually think this trust problem can be solved. Uh, it can't be solved in the short term. It can't be solved with smoke and mirrors. But we know a tremendous amount about what trust is. And we know how to change organizations and how to develop uh, leaders. So we can, we can change this. A, 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 simple, a simple goal, but one that will likely take a, a quite a long time. Uh, but we'll be there. We'll be following you on it. Uh, I, love, I love the book, The Decision to Trust. And so I, anything we can do to help promote it, we are there. Bob, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. It was a pleasure, David.